Chapter 85 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, ready to accompany you into a new instalment of William Pitt the Younger as Prime Minister and of War Across Europe. Pitt was back, but diminished. The way he got back hadn't helped. He'd insisted on complete authority over selecting ministers for the king to appoint, still officially a royal prerogative. Like Addington, his chosen successor as Prime Minister, some ministers had only taken office because Pitt begged them to for the sake of continuity. Now he wanted the authority to fire them? Unsurprisingly, the idea was met with incomprehension, shading into resentment. Eventually, the resentment boiled over into a pamphlet war between Pitt and the followers of Addington. As usual in such a row, the injuries inflicted by each side on the other only left both damaged. One of Pitt's ministers who didn't stay on under Addington was William Grenville. If you cast your mind way back to chapter 56, you may recall a George Grenville, who was an early Prime Minister of George III's. His taxation policies had set Britain on the slippery slope to losing its American colonies. Well, the similarity of surnames wasn't an accident. William Grenville was his son. And just as William Pitt the Elder had initially been a close ally of George Grenville, so William Pitt the Younger and William Grenville would be allies for many years, which feels like a fine example of England's cherished hereditary principle at work. Grenville resigned at the same time as Pitt, but then he led a group of MPs into closer collaboration with Charles James Fox, leader of the Whig opposition and Pitt's long-term bitter adversary. The addition of Grenville's faction was a boost to an opposition that had been weak for years. That in turn allowed Grenville, as the Addington government tottered towards its grave, to propose a three-way coalition to Pitt, with their supporters and Foxes. That, Grenville felt, would be a ministry of all the talents and would enjoy a good majority in Parliament. Pitt, however, not only insisted on having full authority as Prime Minister, he also had two other conditions. The very people he was supplanting, Addington's government, had to request that he take over, and the King had to invite him. Amazingly, he got both conditions. Still a little in awe of Pitt, Addington agreed to hand over to him. And the King then appointed him, though he too had one condition no fox at any price. Pitt had to tell Grenville that he could join the new government, but Fox couldn't. Fox was okay with that as it happened, but Grenville wasn't. Too close to his new ally, he refused to take office without him. The Ministry of All the Talents would have to wait. Pitt then formed the government alone, with all three of the Grenville, Fox and Addington factions against him. Nor could he count entirely on the king. George hadn't wanted to part with Addington in the first place and didn't like Pitt's vindictiveness against him. He was also subject to increasingly frequent and serious bouts of madness. His son, with whom he'd fallen out irreconcilably, was in the wings ready to assume the mantle of Prince Regent. And he was no friend of Pitt's. Vulnerable in the Commons, where he had at best a slim majority, backed by a king in decline, Pitt was also in decline himself. 
his failing health left him short of energy for the kind of fights he'd fought before. He'd always dominated the commons, but now his stamina and even his voice tended to let him down. Always a terrible procrastinator, he became far worse, letting correspondence pile up unanswered or even unread, and failing to deal with issues sufficiently quickly. His second government wasn't going to be anything like as grand an affair as his first. On the other hand, it started with one of those lovely coincidences that give me such joy in doing these podcasts, and which I hope you enjoy too. Pitt received the seals of office that confirmed his return to power on the 18th of May, 1804. While that was happening in London, in Paris, Napoleon Bonaparte was being proclaimed hereditary emperor of the French. Two enemies were stepping up to the pinnacle of power in their respective warring countries on the same day. Neat, isn't it? The obvious question about Pitt's second term is, what did he achieve? The answer, sadly, is not a lot. Facing real problems in Parliament, Pitt somehow found the gall to go back to Addington and talk him into joining his government to increase his majority. That worked, but it couldn't last. What made it fail was that Pitt's old friend and ally Henry Dundas, now under the alias of Lord Melville, was impeached for financial impropriety. The accusation concerned events years earlier, involving a subordinate rather than Melville himself, and in the end he was acquitted. In the meantime, however, the scandal caused Pitt more embarrassment and further drained his waning energy. Since Addington and his followers fully backed the hue and cry against Melville, Pitt decided he really couldn't work with him anymore. In a flash of his earlier brilliance as a political operator, he contrived to precipitate Addington's resignation just days before the end of a parliamentary session. That got rid of him without leaving the time for the opposition to take advantage of Pitt's loss of Addington's votes to bring a no-confidence motion against him. One of the things Pitt had attacked Addington for was not finding a winning strategy for the land war. It turned out to be no easier for him. Recruiting a large army, not a tradition in Britain, proved beyond him. And building a third coalition against France turned into an uphill struggle. Russia sought to explore peace proposals first and wanted Malta handed back to the Order of St John. Prussia wanted George III's German electorate Hanover, but Pitt wasn't keen on that, and I'm sure the king would have been even less so. Then his job was made a lot easier by Napoleon himself. He occupied Genoa and had himself declared king of Italy. That focused minds in Austria and Russia, which decided to stop dithering and join the Third Coalition, though Prussia still hesitated. Meanwhile, at sea, in early 1805, a French squadron evaded Nelson's blockade of Toulon in southern France and vanished into the Atlantic, no one knew where. The fear was that France might be planning to have another go at the English Channel. Napoleon had said, Let us be masters of the Channel for six hours, and we are masters of the world. So it was déjà vu for Nelson chasing French ships as he had before the Battle of the Nile. 
Nelson realised that they'd gone to the West Indies, but by the time he got there, they'd already headed back. So he returned to Europe a round trip of 6,000 miles in two months. His frustration must have been immense, but nothing like Napoleon's fury. He'd hoped that the French Admiral Villeneuve, now reinforced by the Spanish Navy, would have lured Nelson to the West Indies and left him there while he attacked the Channel, supported by further French ships from Brest in Brittany. But here was Nelson back in European waters, the Brest fleet had never got out of harbour, and Villeneuve, finding another British squadron blocking his access to the Channel, eventually pulled back with the Spanish to Cadiz. Napoleon had been planning an invasion of Britain and had assembled a massive army on the Channel coast to carry it out. Now he marched his soldiers away. That was only partly good news for the British, because where he took them was to a massive victory over Britain's ally Austria at the Battle of Ulm in southern Germany. News of the defeat arrived in London in early November, causing predictable depression. Fortunately for the British... Very different news arrived just four days later. Nelson, presumably relieved to have found the French at last, had visited Pitt during a brief stay in England and promised Pitt a victory that would bring Bonaparte to his marrow bones. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it doesn't sound like good news for Napoleon. And notes the contemptuous use of Bonaparte, the original Italian form of Bonaparte's name. On October 21st, 1805, Admiral Villeneuve, having led his joint French and Spanish fleet out of Cadiz, met Nelson in battle at last. As usual, Nelson adopted a bold approach, using the innovative tactic of sailing two columns straight at different points in the arc of ships Villeneuve had formed. That would prove devastating. Ah, Trafalgar, Trafalgar. The Greatest British Sea Battle. Let's take a few minutes to enjoy some of the iconic moments surrounding it. One of my favourites is Nelson's message to his ship captains the night before the battle. He knew there would be a great deal of smoke the next day, so he wrote, In case signals can neither be seen or perfectly understood, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of the enemy. Placing a ship alongside an enemy's at a time when naval battles were fought by exchanging broadsides, firing cannon all the way down a ship's side, meant taking the enemy on. Nelson is saying, you know what to do, you don't need my orders, just do it. It's a textbook example of delegation of authority, one I feel many modern managers could usefully learn. But it was next morning that Nelson sent out the most famous naval signal in British history. England expects that every man will do his duty. It was a fine appeal to the sense of dedication of Englishmen. Still, many of the men doing that duty were Scottish, Welsh or Irish. So it's curious that they were being called on to live up to England's expectations. While he was doing his own duty, a bullet fired from the rigging of an enemy ship ended Nelson's life before the battle was over. But he'd won just the kind of bone-shaking victory he'd promised Pitt, destroying the French and Spanish fleets and establishing complete British dominance at sea for the rest of the war. 
That was painful for Napoleon and for Admiral Villeneuve, captured but then returned to France, where he either committed suicide or was murdered. It was even worse for Spain. Remember how Spain had been the world's leading maritime power? Already diminished by the time of Trafalgar, that battle ended its time as a global force at sea. Before the century was over, Spain would also lose the last of its American and Asian empire. Back in England, while there was grief for the loss of Nelson, there was unconfined joy over Trafalgar. Pitt attended the Lord Mayor's Banquet in London, where he was toasted as the saviour of Europe. He replied, I return you many thanks for the honour you have done me, but Europe is not to be saved by any single man. England has saved herself by her exertions, and will, as I trust, save Europe by her example. As with Nelson at Trafalgar, England stands for all of Britain and Ireland. And it's going to be Europe's saviour. Doesn't that sound like just the kind of effortless English superiority so many in England still claim today? That was Pitt's last public speech. But he still had time to receive one last piece of lousy news. After the Battle of Ulm, the Russians decided it was urgent to act and rushed to join the Austrians to confront Napoleon. He, cunningly, made it look as though he was trying to retreat from their far superior forces. They allowed themselves to be lured out of their positions, at which point Napoleon gave them a catastrophic mauling. Sometimes called the Battle of the Three Emperors, because each army had its emperor with it, but better known as the Battle of Austerlitz, it was a massive defeat for Russia and Austria, and in effect ended the Third Coalition. That was December 1805. News of Auslitz didn't kill the desperately sick Pitt, but it can't have helped. He lingered on, unable to do any more work, until the 23rd of January 1806. The story, impossible to confirm today, is that his dying words were, Oh my country, how I leave my country. Worn out by his life and his work, Pitt died at just 46. He left his country, whether that was England or Britain, in quite a state. Because his nemesis Napoleon was still rampaging all over Europe. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>